Let's have a prayer. Let's get going. Lord God, we thank you that in your word, you have promised us that you turn your face towards us. You pay attention to us. You look at us. You watch over us. You reveal yourself to us. Help us to turn our hearts toward you now so that we might hear some of your word so that in old words that we've heard before we might hear a new message that we might hear a, a message that speaks to what our lives are all about today because today is different from yesterday we don't know what's coming tomorrow but we know that you're here today we are here today we thank you for this gift bless and be with us in jesus then amen we're at the end of Micah. Are you ready to be finished with Micah? Would you like Micah to keep on going? Uh, you know, whatever it is, we don't have a choice. We're at the end of Micah. That's a good thing. Let's remember that Micah has been speaking to us from a period in Israel's history around 700 years before Jesus appeared on the scene, so about 2,700 years ago. Micah lives in the region of Jerusalem, but the northern part of the kingdom is falling. It is being destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. And then later on, Micah foresees that perhaps the southern part of the kingdom will fall. That happens when his lifetime is already done, but he sees the trouble that, that all of Israel is having. He laments that fact, but he celebrates the fact of God in the life of Israel. And he, as always in the Old Testament prophecies, he speaks a great deal about what Israel's responsibility and maybe even more so just Israel's response should be. So that's what we're talking about as we're talking about the prophecies of Micah. Today in the seventh chapter, in a sense, we have a summary of the message. It's going to sound similar to what we've heard in the first six chapters, but it's a, a beautiful summary. Uh, the other day when I was reading through it again, I was struck by the, the beauty of the language, by the imagery that Micah pulls in, all kinds of images that are very powerful. It's not very, very pretty. It's not very happy. It's not, you know, like contemplating unicorns and puppy dogs and chocolate candy and all that fun stuff. Uh, it's contemplating difficult things, but it does it in a very, very powerful way. So as we read through this, let's, let's be sure not to miss the impact of the language that Micah uses. And let's be sure not to miss this fact that one of the reasons that we believe that we know God is because we have language about God. We don't have to look at a flower and try to figure out what God is about. We don't have to sit on a mountaintop somewhere by ourselves for endless days and try to figure out what God is about. We have God's revelation of himself in the history of Israel, in the history and reflection of the people who lived with God and for God, the people who were paying attention to God. And of course, we have that in our own experience as well. So the language is extremely important to us. We are people of the book after all. We are people who believe that in the expression of the words, as limited as they are, we still have a reflection of God. So the first seven verses of chapter seven of Micah. Woe is me, for I have become like one who after the summer fruit has been gathered 
after the vintage has been gleaned, finds no cluster to eat. There is no first ripe fig for which I hunger. The faithful have disappeared from the land, and there was no one left who is upright. They all lie in wait for blood, and they hunt each other with nets. Their hands are skilled to do evil. The official and the judge ask for a bribe, and the powerful dictate what they desire. Thus, they pervert justice. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of their sentinels, of their punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a friend. Have no confidence in a loved one. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your embrace. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies are members of your own household. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Okay, let's take this apart. This is, in some sense, part of the great tradition of lament that we find in the Old Testament. This is not just Micah having a pity party today. (laughs) This is Micah describing a situation in which everything has fallen apart. Everything is tainted and twisted and shaky and falling apart. Notice the, the, the many images, the many descriptions of how bad things are and how he just piles them on one after the other. In all of that, Micah is being extremely honest, extremely blunt about what he is seeing, what he is feeling, and he's laying that all before God and laying that all before the people. One of the things that is true in human uh, psyche and the human society is that we would far rather look at happy things and deal with happy things and feel good when we're simply thinking to ourselves or speaking with each other. And yet, there's a lot in life that is not good. It doesn't feel good, it's not good. And it's incredibly important that we're simply honest about that fact. The Bible, some people say, you know, the Bible is just full of all this, you know, happiness. Oh, you know, God loves you, blah, blah, blah. But the Bible is very, very honest about what real life is actually like. And we need to be honest about what real life actually is like. Not that it's all bad, of course. There's another side to that story. But there is a part of real life that that is just horrible. And, and Micah helps express that for us, especially in his own time. Now, it's, it's a little bit difficult, perhaps for you and me, to get in touch with just how much anguish there is, not just in Micah, but in the people of Israel during this time. You know, it's a magnificently glorious day outside and the flowers are blooming and the Valentine's candy is half off and there's just all kinds of great things that are, that are wonderful in our lives today. We are not suffering what so many other people suffer. So it might help us sometimes as we read passages like this to do one of two things, either get in touch with somebody else's agony and suffering or get in touch with that time when we ourselves have felt 
agonized and, and when we have been, been just beset by problems. Um, I think I'm safe in saying that looking around at this room, that all of you are old enough to have experienced some difficult things in life. Is there anybody here who has never experienced something difficult in life? Please raise your hand and I want to put you under a microscope and figure out what that's all about, right? Of course, we have all experienced and maybe are experiencing right now. It's one of the reasons it's hard for us to move into the pain and suffering of the world because we might be experiencing our own suffering right now and it's just too much to bear. Or maybe it brings up all the memory of all that suffering and pain and it's just too much to bear. That's all very real and yet still the only way the only way we're going to heal, the only way we're going to transcend and overcome and deal with the pain that is in our lives, that's in the world, is to go straight into it and admit it and lay it out there so that God can then do something with it. Now let's look at what Isaiah talk, or Micah talks about here. He talks about the fact that, you know, he, he's hungry. Um, I, I wanted to find something to eat and there was nothing to eat. Okay, that's a bad situation in and of itself. Now we have hundreds of cans of soup. By the way, we collected over 1,200 cans of soup with Super Bowl Sunday, about $3,500 to buy soup. Uh, current rates, that's gonna get us about six cans of soup. And uh, <laughs> at any rate, so thank you for helping to ease the hunger of other people because that's part of what suffering is about in the world. So Micah mentions that here. And of course, we can understand that when there is warfare, uh, farmers are not able to plant, they're not able to harvest, or if they are, armies come in and steal their food, take it away from them. That happens in a lot of the world. And so that's part of what uh, the people are dealing with. But it's worse than that, it's worse than that. Micah says the faithful people have disappeared from the land. Everybody is corrupt. Everybody is looking out only for their own interests, right? Uh, there's no one left who's upright. Uh, the officials, the judges, dictate what they want and they, don't, they pay no attention to justice. The best of them, this is interesting, the best of them is like a weed or a briar, something that sticks you and pricks you, right? And then it gets even worse than that. Not only is there no food, not only does everybody seem to be and actually is corrupt and self-seeking, but you can't even trust the people who are closest to you. That really is tragic, right? Put no trust in a friend, have no confidence in a loved one, guard the doors of, the, of your mouth from her who lies in your embrace. The, the person who is the very closest to you, you have to watch out for. I mean, this is, this is about as bad as it can get. Now, one of these things we understand, right? The daughter-in-law rises up against her mother-in-law. Well, okay, that's normal. Uh, that's a <laughs> right? <laughs> Members of your household are your enemies. It just can't get any worse than that. You can trust no one. So Micah's being very honest about the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad situation in which he lives, in which the nation is now living. This is the way it is. But if you circle one word in this section in your Bibles, circle the first word of verse 7 in chapter 7, the word but. 
You've heard me say this before, or if you've never heard it, take it to heart now. Some of the most important words in the story of scripture have three letters. They're not words like faith, hope, and love. Those are pretty important too. But as the story is being told, that word but is a hugely important story. Everything is terrible. Everything is lost. There is no hope. But that's where God's at work. But, right? You could argue, maybe I should, I think I've already picked my sermon title for Easter, but, but this would be a good, remind me of this someone, maybe for next Easter, that'll be the sermon title, that word, but. Jesus is dead. God is dead. The one in whom we placed all of our hope, all of our confidence, all of our dreams for the future, he's dead, but God is gonna do something different. So in verse 7, Micah still, again, even though everything is pretty much lost, it's toast, it's hopeless, right? The clock is ticking down, and you have no timeouts left, and the other team has the ball, and you're behind. Speaking of Sunday Super Bowl. <laughs> there is no hope, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. A big part of faith is faith in spite of all the other evidence, in spite of everything else that's going on. It's faith that there is something bigger, something more important, more lasting, more real, something that actually has a benevolent purpose in mind, even if everything is lost. So hold on to that idea. Now, let's keep reading. Verses 8 to 17. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy, when I fall. I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I must bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he takes my side and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall see his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is your God? My eyes will see her downfall. Now she will be trodden down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day the boundary shall be far extended. In that day they will come to you from Assyria to Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their doings. Shepherd your people with your staff the flock that belongs to you, which lives alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. Show us marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick dust like a snake, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their fortresses. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall stand in fear of you. Okay, this long section actually has several different speakers. <laughs> 
several different people, if you will, or several different voices coming at us. And it's confusing unless you kind of figure out who's speaking and when there's a shift in the person. So let's go back through this and work through this, right? Chapter 7, verse 7, Micah has said, as for me, I still trust in God. As for me, I know that God will, will care for me, will take care of everything. And then Micah expresses that faith in God, and then he turns to his enemies. He turns to those people, maybe individuals, maybe groups, certainly nations, the empires that attack Israel itself, and he has a word for them. Don't rejoice over me, right? You're going to gloat because you've won, or it seems like you've won. However, however, even when it's dark, the Lord is my light. I love that phrase that's taken really from the, from the imagery of the 139th Psalm, one of my very, very favorite psalms, right? If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold my fast. Even darkness is not dark to you because light is as dark to you. So many different ways of thinking about God's steadfast love in the midst of everything else that has fallen apart. So Micah is expressing, in a sense, a very human emotion here. Don't gloat over me, you who have destroyed me. You who say my God has no power. You who say my God is not a God, not to be trusted. Eventually, my God is going to win. Eventually, because of my God's power, I'm going to prevail. I'm going to be okay. Now that can slide into a spiritual form of pride, which is not very spiritual in and of itself because that pride tends to get focused on ourselves, but the pride really is in God. It is confidence in God. And it's pride that is not based in our desire for our enemies to be destroyed, even though that's a very human response, believe me. It is more in our desire for us to have blessing, not to be destroyed. And so we have to be careful when we read passages like this to take this as a complete expression of the truth. There's a whole lot of other truth that is expressed in the scriptures, that is expressed in Micah himself, right? Micah is not simply saying there, oh, you're winning now, but don't worry, we're going to blow you out of the water later on. Too bad, ha, ha, ha. I mean, you kind of get that sense here, right? Now, I would never say such a thing to anyone. You know, I don't think you all are so nice. You would never. Of course we would, right? You know? This is that human side of that emotion coming out, and that's what we feel. But, but it's ultimately an expression in the power of God. Notice what the enemy says, right? Where is the Lord your God? You know, do you ever get asked that question by people who don't believe in God? All the time. It's like you prayed for something and it didn't happen. You didn't get what you wanted. You didn't get this good stuff. There's bad stuff that happens in the world. God doesn't exist. That's the question right there. Where is the Lord your God? Well, Micah expresses this great confidence and trust in God that God is still there. Now, the voice changes. The speaker changes with verse 11, right? Verse 10 goes, my eyes will see her downfall. Now she will be trodden down like the mire of the streets. And then all of a sudden, a day for the building of your walls. This is a little snippet spoken perhaps by a priest, perhaps by a leader of Israel, perhaps by Micah himself. 
because the cities are being destroyed, right? This is one of the things that, that armies would do when they would come in and take over a city. They would just push over the buildings, you know, take those big stones and just push them over. You see piles of rubble stone still uh, in, in archaeological excavations in the Middle East where the cities have just been destroyed. They haven't been rebuilt. But it was a sign that God was doing something to restore the nation, to rebuild the nation when the cities themselves were being rebuilt. Is anybody here from, from Germany or from Japan? Anybody here? Have you read the history? Have you studied the history? You know, after World War II, cities, entire cities were destroyed. And you can go, you know, to Germany. You can go to Germany and see some of those bombed out buildings still left. Or even more impressive, you can see cathedrals that were rebuilt after they had been destroyed. They went and picked up the stones and tried to figure out the puzzle of where they originally were and then put them back together. You can go to, I think it's the cathedral in Nuremberg that I've visited. Anybody here ever been to Nuremberg? They rebuilt the cathedral. It was just blown to bits, but they took all the stones and built it back together. Things are restored, renewed. That's the image that, that Micah sees. That's the dream that Micah dreams. Now, eventually that will apply to the temple. That will apply to Jerusalem itself. But it applied to all kinds of cities and villages and towns, all kinds of buildings, all throughout Israel, that they had been destroyed. But one day they would be rebuilt, right? A day for the building of your walls. And that day the boundary shall be far extended. Not only will we rebuild the city, the city will get bigger. It will get better. They'll come from Assyria and from Egypt and from Egypt to the river. So the Assyrian Empire, the Egyptian Empire, were two of the empires that often battled each other in Israel. And by the way, Israel got chewed up. Or they just happened to take over Israel as they were going on to do something else, right? Even these big empires are going to go away or they're going to bow down to the power of Israel. That's the, the image that Micah sees. But, but, still there's going to be trouble. The earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants, the fruit of their doings, right? Micah does not downplay the fact that this terrible warfare, this terrible conflict between peoples has lasting consequences. And we have to admit that, that the terrible things that we do sometimes don't get put back together. Eventually, God will put all back together, but an awful lot is lost in this life, is it not? Again, World War II history is one of my favorite periods of history to study, so I, I talk about it all the time. Seventy million people died as a result of everything that went on in World War II. We focus on uh, half a million uh, American servicemen that were killed, uh, primarily men. We focus on several million Jews who were, uh, were exterminated, uh, but over 70 million people, the peoples of all the countries that were at war. And it wasn't just direct warfare, it was the starvation, it was the displacement, it was everything else that went on. Those people don't get their lives back, not here. Lots of what's destroyed doesn't come back. And Micah admits that, and yet still holds on to faith in God. So verse 14 then begins sort of 
a new prayer to God. God, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock that belongs to you. There's that image of, of God as the good shepherd, right? Feed them as in Bashan and Gilead. Bashan and Gilead were the two most fertile areas of the nation of Israel. Go to where everything is beautiful and good and wonderful. Go to the Central Valley in California where everything's going and eat, everything's growing and, and eat your fill, right? As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, show us marvelous things. Here's that prayer, that hope that as God restored things in the past, as God had saved things in the past, for instance, when the family of Abraham was enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years and they had no future, but still God delivered them, God rescued them and gave them a homeland. Like that, God, do that again, do that again. This is a, a, a spiritual dynamic that you and I can make use of, actually, that you and I should make use of. That's why we come back to church all the time, is to remember these things. God has done great things for me, and God will do great things for me. We get great strength by looking at the past, right? How many of you, how many of you never believed that you would make it this far in life? Anybody here? kind of wondered, right? You know, every single one of us has something inside of us that says, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know if we're going to make it. I don't know if we're going to get through. And yet tomorrow comes and we get through it. So yesterday was tomorrow on Monday, right? Yesterday was tomorrow on Monday. So on Monday we were worried about yesterday, but we got through yesterday. And so now we're worried about tomorrow, okay? The, the spiritual dynamic that goes on here is as we look back at yesterday, we see God's going to get us through tomorrow. We always have hope for tomorrow. The sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there will be sun. Anybody know that song? What's that one from? And it will see. Wow, that was good. That was good. And then Micah goes back into kind of sort of this gloating mode, but it's not so much gloating as it is expressing the confidence that God is going to restore the world to the way it should be. That's really what's going on when the Bible says God's going to beat the bad guys. Good is going to win over evil. It's that God is restoring things to the way they are meant to be. This is God's justice. This is rightness or righteousness being reinstituted in the world, right? It's spoken of in kind of a negative way that seems to, seems to want to destroy those who are evil. Well, God doesn't want to destroy people who are evil. God wants to destroy evil itself. But the, the description is graphic, right? They'll be ashamed of their might. They'll lay their hands on their mouths. They'll be deaf. They'll lick dust like a snake. I, li I even like saying that. There's something just very satisfying about it. Remember I said the language is important. They're going to lick dust like a snake, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their fortresses. They shall turn in dread. They shall stand in fear. That is, of course, focused on the people, the enemies, but it's primarily focused on the evil that is represented there. So again, it's a great expression of the confidence that Micah has that God will win and that God's righteousness will be restored. 
Now, when you think about it, it's an interesting conversation as Micah finishes this conversation to think about how history actually played itself out. Let's read the last three, three verses, 18, 19, and 20. And then let's talk a little bit about how this history actually played out. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of your possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in showing clemency. He will again have compassion upon us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and unswerving loyalty to Abraham as you have sworn to our ancestors from the days of old. Micah has touched on the fact that this terrible fate that Israel is suffering is not just the fault or uh, the result of the evil empires that are attacking. It is also, and maybe more so, the result of Israel's own faithlessness, Israel's own turning away from the God who is the source of their life. And Israel is paying for that sin. Now let's get this straight that this is not, this is not God saying, Israel, you, you turned your back on me. I don't like you anymore, so I'm going to punish you. It is that Israel has turned its back on the source of true life. It's turned its back on the way of living that actually does justice and loves mercy and walks humbly with God. That way of living that makes a people strong, that makes a nation strong. There's a very certain sense, especially in the Old Testament prophets, that says we kind of get what we, what we deserve. Stay faithful to God and you'll be fine. Give up your faith in God and you won't. Stay faithful to the way of life that God taught us and you'll be fine. Turn away from that and you won't. There's a certain sense, of course, in which that's true. But it's not always true. Sometimes when you stay faithful to God, you lose everything. That's the story of Job. Right? We've studied Job here before. Job was perfectly righteous. Job was did, doing everything right. And God took everything away or allowed it to be taken away. Yet still Job worshipped God. So we can never say that when something bad happens, it's because we deserve it. We cannot say only that. We cannot say that when something good happens, we deserve it. We cannot say only that. But there is a relationship there. Here's where we get to the paradoxical nature of truth. On the one hand, if you do things the wrong way, then life is not going to turn out well. That is true, right? How many of your mothers taught you to be lying, cheating, no good people as a way of getting ahead in the world, right? And yet we know lying, cheating, no good people do sometimes get ahead in the world and sometimes even seem to thrive and do just fine while the people who are honest, the people who are upright, the people who are moral and ethical struggle. We understand that that doesn't always work out that way. Life doesn't seem fair. And yet, at the end of the day, on balance, would you rather be living over here with God, who will win and has won the victory over everything, or do you want to be over here on the other side? That's kind of what Micah sees. Here he says, God has pardoned. God will pardon our iniquity. God will call us back to himself. The Old Testament saw that Israel had, had simply, they had, they had divorced God. 
they had divorced God. But God would still take them back, right? He will pardon iniquity. He will pass over our, our transgressions. The transgression of the remnant of your possession. You know what that refers to, right? The remnant of your possession. Israel belongs to God. Israel is God's possession. He's the one who has made them into Israel. There's only a few of them left because they've been wiped out, they've been destroyed, and most of them have simply gone away. They said, God, we don't want to belong to you anymore, but there's a handful. There's always what we call a faithful remnant. That's one of the threads uh, of, of, of truth that runs throughout all of Scripture, that there is always someone left. God makes sure there's always someone left who will be faithful to him. It goes back even as far as the story of the flood and the boat and the animals. Remember that story? There's a faithful remnant, Noah and his family, right? And that thread continues. Micah sees that he and others who would understand what he's saying and agree with what he's saying and stay faithful to God. They're the faithful remnant who hang on, even though everything else seems to be destroyed. It's a great way of talking about modern life today, right? Who are the faithful remnant? They will continue. God is going to throw all of our sins into the sea. You've got to completely get rid of them. And God will welcome back whoever wants to come back. But ultimately, it's about God. God is going to show, this is verse 20, God will show faithfulness to Jacob and unswerving loyalty to Abraham. Jacob and Abraham, of course, are individual characters within the story. They also are ways of talking about the whole community. When you talk about Abraham, it's not just Abraham, but about everyone that came forth from Abraham, everyone that came forth from Jacob, right? You are going to be faithful, God. Micah still has confidence that God's promise to make a great nation out of the people of Abraham and be a blessing to the whole world, Micah still believes that's going to happen. You have sworn it to our ancestors from the days of old. Now notice that this section begins, verse 18, with the phrase, who is a God like you? Do you remember at the beginning of the study we said that the name Micah itself means who is a God like you? This is all about God. This whole story, even though it's about the warfare of nations and the fall of empires and all the stuff going on with us, the story ultimately is about God. Here's where Rick Warren got it perfectly right. I've said this before, I'll keep saying it because I think it's right when he started his book about the purpose-driven church. It's not about you. Remember that? That's the first line in the whole book. It's not about you. Who is it about? It's about God. There is no God like you. There is no other God. And you're an amazing, incredible, awesome God. That's who you are. That's who you are. And so that's the God in whom we have faith, in whom we have trust. Now, let's do a little bit of historical thinking, right? Um, how many of you have heard uh, anything recently uh, about the Assyrian Empire. Anybody here heard about the Assyrian Empire? How have you heard about it? In ancient, in ancient history, perhaps? Or in thinking about, there are some people, when you go to the Middle East, there are some people who actually say, you know, I'm a descendant of the Assyrian people. There's still Assyrians around. 
But there is no known entity today, no existing entity, entity today that is the Assyrian Empire, right? Or the Babylonian Empire. There is still the nation of Egypt, right? But it's nothing like the empire that it was. What about the, the, the people of the Jews? Do you still hear about Israel? Do you still hear about the Jews? Of course you do. Now, before 1948, you couldn't say that in the same way that we say that today. But here's an interesting thing that happened. The nation of Israel, the people of God, were wiped out. The nation itself, with a king, and with money, and with armies, and with a society, and a culture, and boundaries, and cities, all the evidence and all the stuff that goes into the making of a nation, all that stuff went away, and yet the nation continued. How did the nation continue? It continued in the minds and hearts of those who still were faithful to God. The Jewish people, the nation of Israel, God's people, from the moment they were created, continued to exist, even when it came down to just one or two of them left. They continued to exist as a people. And in recent history, of course, and in the big span of things going back to 1948 is no big whoop. In recent history, the nation itself in some sense was reconstituted. And yet, there are more people of the nation of Israel who do not live within the boundaries of the physical reality of Israel. They live outside the boundaries of Israel, yet they still are a nation. Now, this is not just about the Jews because when Jesus came along, the Christians began to understand that they were the new Israel. They were a new nation. There are only, I think I've, what are the numbers? Don't quote me on the numbers. But there are maybe about 15 to 20 million Jews in the world today, people who consider themselves to be part of the nation of Israel. Okay, that's not very many. Do you know how many Christians there are? Do you know how many folks there are in the Christian nation? the Christian kingdom, about 1.3 billion, and the number is growing. Now that's certainly nowhere near a majority of folks, what's the population of the world? Seven and a half billion or so, and it's growing. But the Christian nation is continuing to grow. Now, the Christian nation does not have a king. It does not have a physical location. With all due respect to our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters in faith, the center of Christianity is not in Rome. There is no actual physical center of Christianity. There is simply the Christian nation that exists everywhere. So all those other nations, all those other nations, you could argue with the exception of Egypt. Egypt is still here. But all those other empires and nations that rose up with great power and destroyed Israel, they themselves now do not exist and the nation of Israel continues to exist and in the life of the church, the new Israel, we would say, it continues to grow. And we say ultimately one day it will, it will become the whole world. God will bring all into his nation that he wants to be there. So there's a great sense of ultimately confidence in what uh, Micah is saying. I hadn't thought about this until just now, but in a sense, Micah is like that four-year-old with a Batman t-shirt on. Confidence, not in himself, not because of what's going on at the current moment in his life, but confidence in God. Isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing? 
Okay, let me stop talking. You guys ask your questions, make your comments, come down to the microphone as we always ask you to do. Anybody want to say anything or ask anything? When you were talking about the thread, the remnant of thread, it made me think the remnant of thread to Christ. Yes, yes, the faithful remnant, the thread that goes to Christ, and then the thread that comes out of that, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Think about after, after the resurrection, there's a few dozen disciples, right? That's it. Uh, you know, not many more than are in this room. And now there's a big carpet. And now there's well over a billion, and it's growing. Yeah. It's not growing here. It's not growing in the United States. It's not growing in Canada. It's not growing in Western Europe those places that we think of as being historically Christian, uh, it's declining in those places. But the church is growing in South America. The church is growing in what we call sub-Saharan Africa, right? The church is growing in the Middle East and it is growing among people of the Middle East who no longer live in the Middle East. The church is growing, isn't that fascinating? In those places where you wouldn't think it would be thriving, it is. Cool. Anyone else? Okay, what's your take home for today? Your take home is verse 18, right? Verse 18, who is a God like you? That's all you need. Who is a God like you? Just keep thinking about that God and he'll be taking care of you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your servant, Micah. We thank you for his faithfulness to you in a very difficult time. We thank you that in his sensitivity and ability to listen to your word, that he was able to share that word with the people of his time and with the people who have come after, including we who are your people. We thank you that in your mercy and in your grace and in your truth and your plan, that you would continue to reveal yourself in the struggles and the heartache and the agony of life, that those who have lived through it before and still are faithful to you will inspire we who live today, that you will give us strength, that you will give us courage, that you will give us the faith to see beyond whatever we face today and to look into that future where you already are and into that future that you already have redeemed in your great victory over all evil through Jesus' death on the cross. Give us that confidence now so that we can live our lives in a way that brings others into the circle of, of our relationship with you, that brings others into the knowledge of your love for the whole world, that brings us to that place where we can be your ministers of truth in our generation. May you find us faithful and may others find our lives to be an example and an inspiration for their lives as they come into the future. And may it all be for your sake and for your glory, for there is no God like you. Amen. God bless you all. <laughs>